wanted Tunnel Vision having gold, and today we have an awesome show lined up for you with the lovely uh, and interesting Ellen Dudley of Crowdscanner, who's creating games for help people socialize. Ellen, what would you like to talk about tonight about Crowdscanner? Hi, everyone. Um, I'd like to talk to you about yeah, what we've been experimenting on and some about the game that we've built at the moment called People Hunt. People Hunt. Mmm, delicious people. And Deb, what else are we going to talk about? I'd like to dig into the differences between what are we learning from online that can help offline and offline help online. Anything that helps people socialize is okay by me. Kevin, what else do you think we should cover? I think we should talk a little bit about the UK phone hacking that's been going on and how it's bringing down newspapers and governments. Mmm, delicious and nerdy. So, sounds like we have another great show lined up. Listen in. Hey, everybody, this is Tunnel Vision episode 71. This is Heather Gold. Hosting you from lovely Toronto with your other lovely co-hosts in San Francisco this week. Deb Schultz, are you there? I am indeed, and we're um, undergoing a classically San Francisco week where it is very cold and gray <laughs> in the summer. Happy summer, San Francisco, and in Silicon Valley, Kevin Marks. Kevin, you there? I am. I'm actually in San Francisco as well, but I'm, I've been enjoying being in San Jose when they've been moaning about the, the rain up here. And our guest this week from CrowdScanner is Ellen Dudley. Ellen, welcome to television. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Where are you speaking to us from? I'm in New York from my co-working space called WeWork Labs. Very cool. I hear, and uh, so Tumble Vision is a show uh, that is a sort of salon-style conversation where human and tech selves intersect, and tumbling is an old Yiddish word that means to sort of socially engage people, to so, someone who was hired to help get people to dance at a wedding. So we've liked the word as the skill set that's really needed in the networked age, kind of the post-command control world. How do you help things work and conversations continue? You really need to tumble. It's a... So we talk to people who um, are connected to different different ways this practice is showing up now. And the stories, we start out with some of the stories that have been hot this week. And I think, Kevin Marks, we should start with probably the biggest story of the week, which is kind of an exciting political story, as well as a tech story, which is the hacking of the phone mail of 9-11 survivors, which seems to be bringing down like nothing else could, Rupert Murdoch's empire, we hope. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Owner of Mainstream Media. So, Kevin, maybe you can let, quickly get into um, into the story and what you think it means. Well, the, the backstory on this is quite sort of long and complicated, but basically there's been a, there's a pattern of behavior over at least a decade from the, the UK um, tabloid papers of um, spoofing people's voicemail, listening to their voicemail, and then writing stories based on it. Um, and there have already been criminal prosecutions about this a few years back, but um, the, the, they didn't stop doing it. And there's, there's a, con- a continuing um, debate about this in the United Kingdom. And it was brought to a head this week um, 
as a, by a combination of factors. It was a mixture of um, new evidence emerging that they had uh, hacked into the voicemail of murder victims and indeed um, deleted some of the voicemails so more would be left so they'd have more stories to write about. Um, that, and this was raised, this had been raised in Parliament um, before, um, but part of the, the problem with this was there was such a sort of um, old boy network culture in the UK that um, both leading political parties were, were trying to hush people up about this. Um, the Metropolitan Police, who were supposed to investigate it, were hushing people up because they were um, you know, con- uh, colluding with um, News International on this as well. And so um, it, it took, I think eventually it took people complaining about it in public on, on, on social media to push it back into um, into the media's attention in such a way that it couldn't be ignored by everyone. Now, The Guardian has been doing sterling work on this by, by reporting on the story for the last few years, but it, um, I think it was the sort of um, at least partly social media-led boycott of the news of the world and the news of the world's advertisers over the last two weeks um, that has that helped bring it to the, the, the crisis point over the, over the last week where suddenly they, they shut down the entire newspaper, they're in full damage control now, um, Various Murdochs and Rebecca Wade have been summoned to parliamentary committees to testify. Um, the, the leading political parties are now breaking. Before, they were pretty much um, willing to go along with whatever, uh, with, with the Murdoch agenda to some degree, um, to make sure that they got favorable coverage in his newspapers because there was a perception that would swing the election. Um, and that, and there's, you know, that's been you know, documented and discussed this week. So basically, there's been this sort of um, sudden um, revelation of the um, the networks of, of sort of cosy corruption that, that have been part of UK life for the last um, you know, 20 years. Um, and, and this story just keeps showing more and more of that up. I mean, this is sort of a big... We, we, we're going to try and move through the, the tech news a little bit quicker this week, but it's, it's such a big story because if it really does bring things down... Um, in some ways, from her doc, and I think really nothing brings a system down like itself. It's very hard for something outside to beat uh, any kind of monopoly. Um, you know, it, it could really just open up a lot more space for network. Well, network media is already you know doing quite well. The Economist has a really nice cover story this week about uh, the internet returning to the coffee house era, sort of early yes. conversation area of media, even before newspapers were widely read. So uh, it seems like not a coincidence that those things are happening at the same time. Uh, Ellen, is this, is this something that's affecting you or a story that's, that seems to matter to you much? Um, just from being like interested in it in general, but um, it, it's just still shocking to me that people can invade in those systems and it takes so long for us to realize that anything is happening or, you know, as Kevin said, that this has been going on for a long time, but only because of social media has anyone started to react towards it or to pull their advertising as a result. Um, it's interesting how much power we have because we know about these things that they're happening, that we can actually change um, and bring down something like the news of the world, which is kind of cool. Um, but in terms of what we do, it's not. I can't see the direct link. But well, the, the one one link that was made was um, Cory Doctorow wrote a, a good essay in the Guardian today, um, where he was saying there's in response to this there's been a call for more press regulation, um, 
because the quotes the press is too powerful and he says no the, the problem is not that the press is too powerful the problem is there are there are monopolies within the press um what you what um there is a, a subgroup that is that is too powerful um and what you don't want to do with this is to go into legislation that will that will constrain freedom of speech because that's actually the problem that we've had is that no one has dared to speak out about this um so there's um <clears throat> You know, that that I thought that was that was a very well argued piece. Um, sorry, I'd like to just if we can move along, just so we can hit a couple other stories real quickly before we get into larger conversation. I know it's a bit abrupt, but we're trying to stay on track this week. Uh, I don't know, Deb, if this was your story or yours, Kevin, about Mary Hodder's posting on women. Um, Sarah Sandberg, it's gotten quite a bit of attention. Ken Alada's piece uh, in the New Yorker and Sheryl Sandberg who is the CEO of Facebook, has a pretty well-viewed uh, TED Talk about women in leadership. And it's a bit of an old topic in the tech sphere. But she has a bit of a new point in the sense that she's focusing quite a bit on uh, really the risks women aren't taking, that women are taking themselves out of the workplace. Um, I saw a very good critique of the piece on feministing. It's a very different kind of world of a publication than The New Yorker, uh, saying they you know, the Sandberg piece is useful, interesting insofar as it, privileged women um, are are concerned, but that um, essentially the only changes we are seeing socially, even marriage equality passing in New York happens because billionaires backed it. Essentially that the kind of rules she's talking about only matter where there people already have quite a bit of money. This is an old conversation. And, and was this your, your link, Deb? Mary no, Hodder's it wasn't. New post? It, it, it wasn't. I uh, Mary had sent me the post, but uh, her post about it, but I didn't get a chance to actually read the story. For, for some background, Cheryl had recently at the um, TED Women's Conference given a talk that was very widely followed. You know, around this, you know, around what women need to do to be more successful, and et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't read the latest Kenoletta piece, so I can't speak to that. It's an overview, uh, and it quotes Dina Kaplan, which is kind of interesting, talking about being uh-huh. hit on by a VC. And I kind of joined in. I mean, I got hit on. I used to be a biz dev executive uh, when there are very few women working very early. I mean, almost none, long before even Dina. And I was twice hit on by guys who I looked to as mentors, who I thought I was meeting, having dinner meetings with or meetings with as mentors, and yet made pretty clear they wanted to sleep with me. Um, both of whom were, and one of them was just incredibly inappropriate and wanted to show me you know, half-naked drawings of women as part of his so-called business. He's a pretty influential guy, uh, founded a pretty large company. Um, I think those aren't that unusual. I mean, for me, it wasn't that unusual to have those experiences. So there is some coverage of that kind of thing. Yeah, go ahead, Kevin. So that, that was part of Cheryl's point, is that um, the difficulty is in order to um, basically get groomed for success, you need to have that kind of close mentorship, but it's open to either... Um, abuse of the sort you just described or of um, gossiping if if, if a, you know a senior male exec meets with a, a younger female exec to to mentor then then um, if she then gets promoted then the implication is that she got it by sleeping with him so and in my case you would think i would have been protected as a lesbian it it kind of made some of it a bit easier i think it is a little tougher if you're straight yet it didn't stop them from presuming i was available to them which i'm not but uh I think it does protect you a bit if you're gay from the from the gossiping point you made, Kevin. It did. It makes. I found at Apple that being gay made things a little bit easier, but being a woman made it much harder. 
right. because there were no women in the top senior ranks and the very top uh, yeah, still uh, execs, including at that point, Sajeev uh, Jahil was senior VP, you know, were kind of infamous for their own sexual exploits, whether they were true or not, they were rumored to be about their job. So um, it just made an environment where there were certain expectations. Uh, Ellen, g- is this something that you want to weigh in on? Um, I mean, it's such an interesting thing that's been going on, this whole women in tech business. Like, I mean, we are based in Ireland and I've only been in New York for a couple of weeks. So, and we only just got funding a couple of months ago. And although we've been working on our own startup for years, we've never, I've never been that co-founder in such a high up position that I would have experienced, um, any of this, you know, so it's kind of only come to my attention the last six months or so, I suppose, that there's even an issue with women. And I'm just so used to being surrounded by men at every conference that I go to that I just, you know, um, it's one of those things. But I have had then one situation um, recently enough of uh, another investor kind of being um, inappropriate towards me. And it's, I suppose... I'm still not sure what to think about it, you know, how to react to those kind of things or, or what's the, I suppose, when when it's going to stop being such a big issue, you know, and, and if what Cheryl is, is talking about, I mean, it's great to bring women, you know, to talk about how women need to take a step forward and push themselves and have bigger ambitions and all those kind of things is great. Um, but I think that sometimes it's, it's lost maybe that we have different strengths. And I think I would like to be finding ways to be a woman and a strong leader without having to do a lot of male things in order to get there, you know? So it's, I mean, I'm still finding my way, so I don't have a complete answer on that. So, um. In my larger project with uh, delves into this topic pretty deeply. So and we could, some could easily spend a couple shows on. If you're curious about it, you can see um, some stuff at with.heathergold.com. I did a, a long interview. Well, there's only five minute concise little video with on life and perpetual beta with Melissa Pierce and that. And I, I talk about it there. I, I- Democratization of information rather than a hierarchy of information that maybe people are waking up to the fact that some of those skills are equally as important as maybe what's considered the, I don't know, the more male-dominated, you know, overly simplistic, you know, the financial stuff and the leadership from the top down kind of thing. So, I mean, to, to me, I think it's great, but I didn't see anything in the conversations, though I haven't read Ken Oletta's piece, that is looking at this any differently than it has any time some strong woman who becomes a CEO of some company or somewhere takes it upon herself to raise this issue again. <laughs> so that, um, that's yeah. my frustration. You know, there's a lot of interesting follow-up on Google Plus as it relates to Tumble Vision, like there's nobody's business. And prior to tonight's setup for the show, um, we decided we're going to do our own Tumble Vision show on Google Plus with no guests because it is unfair to subject our guests to our, all three of our very passionate opinions about it. But I'd love, Kevin, if you could sort of um, introduce what Ellen is working on and, you know, why, um, you know, how it relates to television. Let's just jump right into what you're doing, Ellen. Okay, let's, let's do that. Um, so um, I met Ellen at Ecom the week before last, I think it was, um, where she gave a wonderful presentation um, called Designing Technology-Fueled Social Objects. Um, and um, she's been working on a startup to um, use technology to encourage people to have face-to-face conversations. So I want... Um, 
I think that's probably enough for me. I should let Ellen explain more about that. Okay, uh, great. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, it was great to meet you and at that conference. Um, and so, like, the tagline, the second part of my the title for my talk was um, why face-to-face -face conversations suck and what we can do about it. Um, so, like, I've been... It's really fascinating to find tumbling because it's, like, something that I'm really passionate about, but I never knew a word for it. So I started, like, three years ago working on trying to make people or make myself be in an interesting conversation on a more regular basis. So I was a biomedical engineer originally, and I was working in a company nine to five, and so was my partner. And we were just like, you know, this this can't be it, you know, going to work every day. And, you know, after traveling so much before getting the job and living in different places, and I had spent some time in South Africa and in Mexico and like all over, and then having to live in the one place with like three weeks holidays of the year and working with the same people. And it was just horrendous. And so we kind of like tackled what was the thing in our lives that was the most meaningful or that we had the most fun doing. And we decided it was when we were talking and having interesting conversations with amazing people. And so we were like, well, how can we make that happen more, more often right here? So um, we started a company called Meet For Real, which is the, my Twitter handle. Um, and that was like three years ago or two, well, two and a half years ago. And we started organizing events. And we we're like, if we can't find people in our city, we should put on events and, and draw them to us. And so we used to um, like get speakers and then we would ring a bell and we'd ask people to move around the room and talk to different people. And the whole point of the event was to learn from each other, share ideas and talk to people that you wouldn't normally talk to. Um, and it was great fun, but like it was really hard putting on events and you'd spend like the whole month organizing the event just for a couple of hours of this amazing experience. But we had to do promotion and we're both kind of technologists. So it just seemed a bit of a waste of a whole month of promoting things and advertising just to have a couple of hours of an interesting night. So we decided we wanted to do something that would like we could talk to a stranger anywhere at any time. We didn't have to organize an event for it and ring a bell for it that we could just talk to a cool person person or have an interesting conversation. And so we started like building tech and we built an iPhone app called, it was called CrowdScanner, but now it's called Pass and Poll. And we just like would pass our phone to people on the street and the phone had a multiple choice question on it. And the person would look at the phone instead of looking at you and like answer the question, something like, you know, what do you think of boys who wear pink? They're gay or they're cool or they're annoying or whatever. And, or I don't think anything about them. And they'd answer the question and then they would pass the phone around in a group. And it was like the best thing ever. Cause we used to start conversations on the streets or at events or anything. You just pass someone your phone. So I have a few questions here. I have two, I have two questions. I, yeah. I, I, this sound, I, first of all, I love the premise of why face-to-face -face conversations suck since we all spend way too much time on why online conversations suck. And I think, you know, one of the things that we talk about on Tumbling a lot is the skills that we need both online and offline to create a sense of community and conversation and catalyze others to action. So first, I, I you know, why did you think that was it was it literally that you wanted to create an opportunity for people to get together and talk to each other, like you said, because you were traveling? And what were those – was there anything that you did at your events that um, – you know, what, how were they structured so that people had good conversations? Because you, were they – you had to bring another friend that nobody knew. Um, you know, set the stage for what your, those evenings that you, set, that you put together looked like and how people so, like, met each other. 
like initially we had no idea how like we at the beginning it was just like a meetup so we would like think of a cool topic like astronomy um or life the universe and everything and we would get a speaker to come we realized after the first like three events that we need to have a speaker so this is like really you know learning from scratch how to put on an event and that if you had a speaker people would come and that if you had a topic people who were interested in that topic would automatically go to it which was something new for us um and that once you got all those people in the room like which took so much time and effort and energy and that's something that we're still so like focused on now is that it takes so long to get cool people into the same space together that why are they just sitting there listening to the speaker and then they all mm. leave afterwards and it just seemed like crazy that you know you can listen to content anywhere or you can read a book about it or you can watch a film about it but you're there like face to face with cool people sitting right next to you and there's very little in the way of facilitating interaction between you it's just like have a drink and maybe you'll stand next to them at the bar and you'll have a conversation so we focused on like um after the talk we would get people in the audience to come up and talk about what they were working on so at least some people in the audience would have um you know you'd know who they were so that's easier than to talk to more people rather than just a speaker um and then we would have this play time where we would ring a bell every 3 minutes and we thought that by changing the environment of the event is and by changing the rules and the etiquette and telling people what was allowed to happen then that we could catalyze these conversations and people were really up for changing their behavior because we allowed them to and we told them that this is cool to do it you know so then they interacted with one another um and then after we rang the bell like three or four times we would let people just freestyle and then they found formed their own groups as they wish just checking in to see if you guys can hear me yes 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 did you did you get a chance to hear how what, basically um Ellen we've been ta- we've been talking about the face to face and the stru- it's interesting because the the structure or lack thereof that you're talking about is very similar to sort of unconference kinds of things which mm-hmm. is always around um you know a business topic and this was sort of getting people to talk to each other in what we used to call just a dinner party right you know um yes. and so you you sort of structured this tumbling for people who who don't normally um you know not everyone's an extrovert or a tumbler so you gave them a way to talk to people they didn't know it's like speed dating but not like speed dating i guess speed yeah. dating conversational topics right Yeah, but like the the problem that we had was like every event we did was different because we didn't want to do the same type of event. So we would do an astronomy event one week and then we would do a game theory event the next week and then like an environmental week uh, like event the the month after that. And the people who were interested in the astronomy were not interested in coming to the game theory and we're not interested in coming to the environment stuff so we found that we were filtering people ah. and it was really annoying you know because the, you can't mm-hmm. get that diversity you know so we were hoping that we could grab people who would want to come to all of them like we wanted to go to all of them but that just wasn't the case um so that was kind of disappointing in that sense and that's why we couldn't really keep going because we weren't building up this community who kept following us to any event it was just this we had to uh, market ourselves each time to a new audience wow right <clears throat> was that because your pool wasn't big enough for it to be a themed event? I mean, uh, this was this was in in Galway, was this? So. This is in Galway, which is I mean a tiny population anyway. So it's you know it was a struggle anyway. I don't know what it would have been like if we were in a big city, you know, trying this. I mean, I think it's a struggle struggle from an opposite perspective. Why is it a struggle in a smaller city any more than a bigger city? Well, there's just less people. Like, 
but to get them out, but to get them out. You would think if they're, you know, you'd think that what I found is when I go to smaller communities, you sort of just want to get together and socialize. It's not about necessarily the topic as much, but I, I hear what you're saying. Um, so the point is if in, a, in a bigger city, you can have a pool together with people with, with a common interest that's large enough to sustain a, an ongoing, you know, meeting thing. Right. Um, whereas if you're in Galway, if you're trying to do a startups meetup, you'll probably know everyone within the first you know, month and there'll be 10 of you and that'll be it, right? Yes. And, and also people don't tend to go to stuff. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know if it was just Galway or it's here. I mean, it's, the, people would rather go to the pub, you know, like they just, it was just really hard to get people <laughs> yeah. seriously to do something different. Um, so that was frustrating as well. So. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm sorry this is a, re- a repeat because I obviously what is it that you were doing Ellen to get people out and what were they what was did you organize your gathering around uh, we organized the it was, it was called meet for real so we just organized hello? gatherings around hello can you hear me yeah we, we, we can hear you Heather keep going Ellen uh, we would all organize the gathering around a topic so Speaker. Uh, sort of can you give me an example? So I know what kind of is it, are these tech things or? Okay, so this was like a couple of years ago. Um, so it was it was all different types of topics. So sometimes it was astronomy. Sometimes it was like um, adventure filmmaking. And another time it was recipes exchange. And another time it was like uh, or cooking food with like chemicals and learning different things about the taste buds. All different types of stuff. To me, I think the really interesting learnings around this is, as I was thinking about you talking about, first you did this face-to-face, you know, sort of meetings, and then realizing that you're spending all this effort and energy in a small community to get people to come out again. So how can we sort of transfer that? So let's take that to the, ne- the next question, which is, so then you decided to, how can we just have a lighter weight way to engage with people? Not necessarily 50 people at a time because your observation was, I'm repeating some of this so Heather can get back in, but your observation was, why are we all sitting in a room? Heather's going to love this. And listening to the speaker on the stage, which we brought in because people tend to gather around topics when we could all be talking to each other. So then going from those groups of, I don't know how large the groups were, meeting for real, 20 people to whatever group it was. And then you said, wow, let's try this sort of social experiment, right? Using the phone, right? Yeah, so then we, we started building tech. So our first one was a social experiment with the phone. Um, and now we've kind of pivoted a few times because we joined a hacker space and, and we learned a few things about the things that we want to happen when you're in a group of people. So the tech that we want to support an environment. Um, and so we started looking at social objects and how you can um, make spaces uh, um, more conducive to people actually interacting with one another. And what have and, you learned? And so, like, so we built we built these social objects, which were we used at a few events, which were you would see who was at the event and what who your friends were, so who you were connected to already. Um, and then we built another one where you would see who your clone was at an event. Um, and so by giving people information, like it was kind of like they would stand before the screen and they would talk to each other based on what was on the screen. So they were kind of had something cool to talk about with each other, which were, was great. Were these very, Ellen, were these very geeky uh, populations to begin with? Because the topics you all mentioned all sounded pretty geeky. Not recipes. Uh, recipes uh, that involve chemicals, I believe. <laughs> oh, I missed, <laughs> the chem- I missed the chemicals part. <laughs> uh, well, the to- the... 
the, they were Ignite events that we did the mm. showing the social objects at. But I like, no, there was no, we had artistic events as well. And we had how to use, how to use business for, at, for artists. And we had managing in turbulent times about innovation. So we had like lots of different topics. Um, no, I'm saying is that the group of people coming out a pretty geeky group of people or is it more different than that? The people coming to those events. Um, I no, no, I don't think so. Like, I mean, they were all different. So there was some theater group. So there was theatrical people. So I, I wouldn't. I mean, you can't because all the topics were so different, and we were dragging people from different areas that it was just never the same. So, um, not necessarily geeky. Although geeky is cool, but I don't know what like. No. Um, but our hackerspace, yes, was kind of full of geeks that we did create, and artistic geeks. <laughs> so, how did people respond to the idea that they go to a screen first? Oh, they loved the screen. They loved the cloning one where you take a photo of them and they would see who their clone was. And so we kind of stepped it up a notch and then we built this game called People Hunt. So that's what we're working on at the moment. And we kind of built it on the platform of questions. And so we learned that like people really like to um, know where they are in reference to other people. They kind of like to know about themselves. And so we built this game where you change the rules of the environment with People Hunt. And that's... Um, I suppose a kind of a combination of all the things that we learned when you gather people together, how you can um, stimulate conversations between them by giving them something to do that's quite fun. Right, so it alleviates that social awkwardness because not all of us are extroverted, although the three of us on this show are the hosts. Although, Kevin, you keep saying that you're an introvert. I'm, I'm, right? I'm not an extrovert. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've, done the, I've done the psych test. I, I, I come out very low on that um, um, empathy thing. So I'm, I'm working hard on this. Yeah, and you know, Heather was talking about having tools. Yeah, you need tools, right? Not everybody can. Ju- that's why that's the role of what tumblers help do, right? The people sort people sort of help this happen. Um, you know, uh, Heather was typing in the chat room that it's not Oprah's people. Although I would argue, I used to put on conferences and events for bankers. Now they're geeky, but in the old definition of a geeky, like they're nerdy. No, um, they're 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 a different crowd than what it sounds like Ellen's dealing with. Yeah, exactly. And I used to put together, and I used to use. Now that I think about it, social objects to get them to talk to each other, right? You know, it, not social lubricants like beer, but like anything about, and that's that's what sort of anything about yourself, posi- you know, framed or positioned in a different way, tends to help people open up a little, right? I mean, Heather, you, you know, you talk about this and I'm presenting. So what, how, you talk about changing the environment. What do you mean by changing the environment of, uh, with the, this game you're creating? I'm curious about some of the, the things that you've sort of thought about. So by, by changing the environment, I mean like changing the rules. Because I think like even coming to this co-working space in New York, and it takes a while to figure out what the rules are of a space when you enter and like what the etiquette is in this country or, you know, yeah. how people relate to one another. And I suppose every time you come to an event, especially if you're traveling there, there's that kind of initiation period where you're trying to figure out what's the, what are the rules of this space. Um and so I think when, when we, what we play people hunt for is that it's the first thing that you do when you come in. So you're actually given the rules 
and you're given the etiquette. And so you, we give you a, a cartoon persona based on your personality, but you have to keep it a secret. And the goal of the event or of the, the, the game together is to figure out who is the most perceptive of the group of people that you're hanging out with. And so when you in, engage in conversation with somebody, you have to try and figure out what their personality is or what their cartoon persona is. And so if you're very good at figuring people out, then you're very good at playing people hunt. Um, but it also, but if you're very good at figuring people out, you don't need the game to, to do that. <laughs> no, and so the game is just for fun, you know, so you get to meet different people. As in how you can get the new people to meet the people who already know each other and create that diverse network between people, you know, because sometimes when you go to something and you see the familiar faces, you just would hang out with those people. Um, right. And we want to find a way of how you get those new people to integrate really fast into a network of people who already kind of are familiar with one another, you know? And so you're trying to shift the social space by having a game that has rules that are equal for everyone that gives people a way of dealing with their, with the discomfort they might have of talking to each other directly. Well, they're, no, so they, are talking, they are talking to each other directly. No, I mean, share they're, they're tough, but they're, it's through the game. Right? No, 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 no. Look, so you, you answer the questions on your phone, but then you're talking to people face to face and you're trying to figure out the, their the phone's giving you prompts to talk to the person. The prompts that well, gives you so like a that, that's, that's, that's sort of my point. The game is doing the difficult, the most emotionally difficult work of, for example, if I don't have your game and I go to a room with a bunch of people and Ellen, you know, I could ask you, you know, you did in grade eight and where you ate lunch, who you ate lunch. I million things, right? Or I mean, if I, but if I'm with you and that's hard for me and I have your game, then I can, and we're all. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, frustrating. It like pops out every time you say. So, first of all, you create a shared social goal, right? That's the point of the game is that it's everybody's in it. So right away, there's a thing. Can you, hello? Yeah, um, keep going. Can you guys hear me now? Yes, um, off and on. Just keep going. There are holes in it. Have a, oh God, if, if you have a game that everyone's playing, it gives everybody a shared social space because you're all doing the same thing, provided you all go along with it and you all play it. And that lets people de- – it means that people don't have to do that. It, like some of what might be emotionally comfortable for some people, so the game will do it. That's what I mean by not being direct with each other because – you have you have a game there. I mean, it's it's doing some of the stuff for you. That's the the design purpose of the game, I guess. So this is kind of the role that Werewolf plays at um, yes. O'Reilly events, yeah, right? At this all events, where, right? Well, well, but I mean, but the Riley, the the E-Tech and Foo ones were where I, I encountered it most often. Yes. Where describe would, what Werewolf is quickly. So have, you, do you, have you played Werewolf, Ellen? I don't know if you know this. So, so Werewolf is a game where you divide, um, you have approximately 12 people sitting around a table and you have a um, moderator person. Um, two, two people, two or three people are, everyone gets given a car to say what they are, whether they're a werewolf or a villager or a healer or a seer. Um, and basically the werewolves can kill people in the night and then the villagers lynch people in the daytime who they think are werewolves. Um, and this is you know, enforced by the moderator. The werewolves know who each other are. The villagers don't know who the werewolves are. They've got to try and guess that by um, um, talking to them and, and, and seeing if they're lying or not. So but it, it's um, a fairly nicely defined rule set that gets a group of people to start having conversations about whether they're telling the truth or not. 
um, and it's and it's ridiculously addictive. Um, and this is something that I think it was Jane McGonagall um, and Dana Boyd who brought it to um, the O'Reilly crowd in the first place. I remember playing it at ETEC in 2003 or so. Um, it, it's, it's something that's been played at science fiction conventions a lot before that. Um, and it works very well precisely for the reasons you're saying. Um, by giving people a set of rules and putting them in the room... Um, then, you know, as they gradually die and the circle gets smaller, the rest of them sit around the edge and watch, but, and watch them. And they Kevin, have perfect information. Kevin, can you guys yes. hear me or not? Yes. It yes. works. Let's just be clear. It works if everyone in that room wants to do those kinds of things and it decreases anxiety for that kind of person. There will be people from whom will immediately say, this is bullshit. I'm not doing this. So it doesn't help right. them do it. And there will be, That's I mean, true. it just depends on the kind of person. Right, they work truly well for a certain kind of geek because you're talking about people who are generalizing socially uncomfortable. Explicit rules make things more comfortable because things are more explicit. There's not as much phatic reading. There, I said it. Everybody no, there's phatic. a lot. There's a there's a lot uh, there's of phatic much- reading. In Werewolf. In Werewolf, there's huge amounts. There's a huge amount of phatic reading. What I think, I think you're 100 percent right, Heather. It decre it 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 frees up the. Um, now, what I'm saying oh. is it's made explicit that you emphatic read. Yes, yes. It makes explicit because basically what happens with a game like Werewolf or other games similar to it, which I think is what you're talking about, Ellen, where you help people along with this. And this is some of the stuff that we – obviously, we don't even do a good job of it offline. We do an even worse job of it online in social networks, right? That's sort of the whole – problem and things that we try to work on here at Tumble Vision that it, it, what, what does come out of a game of werewolf or similar types of games or, or one could argue almost any game is a sense of bonding and a shared purpose. And with werewolf, because it's also, you also have to play a character or something, it makes it very emotionally safe for people to sort of interact with each other. Um, And so it's especially good. I agree with you, Heather, for geeks. Although I've seen, uh, non-geeky folks also um, really I, I enjoying play it. With gangs of teenagers. I, yeah, exactly. Well, that, te- that works. But Heather would argue that teenagers are, are that are coming to your house. The ones yeah. that Kevin's got there. Yeah. So who is so Heather? Since you're very, you're very. I'm just so saying, pretend someone's not like us. Where I'm a geek, I love geeks, and I love this stuff. But, you know, I, that's what I'm curious for Ellen. If she, are you still with us? I don't want to. Yes, yes, this. yes, I'm here. Great. So, like, I don't know about the mix of people. I, I would say, um, you were saying, like, theater people and artists and scientists. Like, to me, they're all a similar kind of geek in the sense that, the, the, like, ideas are inherently interesting to that group of people. But if you take a bunch of people who, focus on social stuff uh, largely, like think back to high school, like, you know, the girls in the sorority, okay? Right. Uh, people who spend 80% of their time socializing. The thing I would mention about the geeky thing, like, I mean, sure, this is a geeky thing. So, I mean, but a lot of the focus is like, how do you have an interesting conversation? You know, if it was, even if it's with a sorority girl or, or someone who's like, it, okay, but like if... Um, how do you even have a conversation with a non-geek, you know? Like, how do you find right. that point of, of connection right. where 
anything that they say right. can be interesting. I mean, every, I think that when you talk to anybody, yes. everyone has something interesting that they can teach you, even if they have like very little education or, you know, you're sitting on a train next to them. Like everybody has a unique life and that you can learn something from them. So it doesn't have to be a geek. It's just that part of the problem that we're trying to solve at the moment happens to be around these meetings and these gatherings that are taking place just because that's what we're doing a lot of and we're interested in focusing on that problem. But what we really want to do is find like a way of building a platform so other people can build face-to-face -face stuff for other indications, you know, that it's not, it's just that this is where people are all gathered together at the same time and they've come there to talk. So if they've come there to talk, they should be able to have interesting conversations and we don't feel that that's being supported, you know? Right. I, I think it's really important. Go ahead, Kevin. Um, can you talk to the, the civil inattention stuff? Because I, I thought that was a, a fascinating part of, of what you spoke about um, for Civil inattention. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, in the 1960s, it was a phrase that was coined to describe how people started to ignore each other in public spaces. Because we had gone from a stage where if we were on the train with somebody, you would talk to everyone who was in the carriage with you. I mean, that was just the common courtesy. And then it just became overwhelming. And so people started to ignore each other, but they needed to do it in a polite way. So they would read the newspaper or listen to the radio or something. And it was called civil inattention. And, and then it just became, well, it was called civil inattention after it happened. But that it's just the polite way that we ignore each other. Um, and it's something that we need to do to, to cope with the fact that we're surrounded by people all of the time that we can, just cannot I, possibly talk to. That's a very interesting term. I, Ellen, what you're saying about civil inattention, you're talking about people disregarding each other in public space. So um, I found, I've moved to Canada this year, I, and I was just in Australia maybe a month ago. I have a feeling like sort of Commonwealth countries are a little bit different, say, than the U.S., in terms of how public space gets negotiated between people. Yes. And, and that kind of I politely don't hear you is not a general and American approach to things, uh, although the Midwest is a little bit different and cultures are different. And, of course, there's all kinds of ethnic differences. Part of why I'm so fast interested in this topic this is what I care about the most is I don't think we have a lot of experience creating public space for people to be quite different. We have lots of public spaces that have been negotiated among people. Um, Heather, I, couldn't, I think um, we should try for calling you back on the phone um, and see yeah. if that works. Um, I, I think but I thought what was right. interesting... Yeah, I think I'll let because Andrew... It, we tend to lose you exactly at the point as you're waking some <laughs> yeah. important Make bit of the conversation. <laughs> I know, because she sets it up and then, we, and then she goes blank. So let's let Andrew and Heather figure out how to get her um, connected better. It's like, wait... But I think what's interesting that Heather what what's interesting that Heather said was which may have been lost in translation <laughs> is um, how you know civil inattention culturally um, comes out of sort of a shared expectation of how we're supposed to behave in public spaces and what we probably need more of today is sort of an understanding that there's there's as Kevin you often say we have many publics. Right. Yes. So maybe many different ways of behaving in public is acceptable or people should all feel emotionally comfortable to to share a public space together, you know, or maybe we won't reach that 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 place. What's interesting to me with what the issues that you're wrestling with, Ellen, is um, is anything that enables people to connect better 
is great. Um, you, you know, making it easier for people. If you have to use a device, so what? You know, I think Heather and I are definitely not the kind of people who need devices. But like Kevin discusses, we need phatic you know, faces help us connect with each other better online. Well, if I'm sitting, you know, uh, Heather had typed in the chat room, if you're interested in people, people are interesting. And that might be true, but I have a really close friend who finds people fascinating, but that doesn't mean that she finds it easy to start a conversation with the person sitting next to her in the train. I, however, if I saw them reading an article, would say, what do you think about that article? And I would have no qualms. But, but you're saying many that you would, start, don't. You, you would start the conversation based on the fact that there's a social object right there, right? Exactly. Which is or something. Exactly. Yeah. So how are you tackling the problem of when everyone is on an iPhone or that you can't necessarily see what they're doing? Do you still, do you like look into their iPod screen or their iPad and, and see what they're reading and then talk to them? Well, you pick something else. Because sometimes it can just be looking someone in the face and smiling. You know, um, and and obviously the less the the less intimidated you are, the easier it is, or the less at, at an emotional stake. The cuter the guy will be that I want to talk to, the harder it's going to be, <laughs> right? You know, personally. So you, you just look for something else. I think it doesn't always have to be what the person is reading. It could be it could be asking them about um, the ad. Like I could be commenting on the ad advertisement that will be in the train. Doesn't that, isn't that like kind of ridiculous? I think what's interesting is that certain people find it really interesting to find those, to do those openers. And, and as you create the, the app, unpacking what those different types of things are is where it gets interesting, right? Like what are the mechanisms? Cause are you finding that the social object questions in a phone are almost too intimate? Looking at someone's screen, looking at their phone. No, no. I'm just wondering about how yeah. our spaces, like that's one of the things that we like are fascinated by is you can start a conversation with anything and that's what people generally do. They'll go up right. and they'll say nice hat or, you know, right. where did you get those shoes? You know, you'll use any object that you can just comment on in order to, to you know, it's a pickup artist thing as well, but it's, right. um, what my, my interest was is in if things are moving online, how much of those social objects are still in our spaces? Because if you're reading an iPad, I don't necessarily know from sitting in front of you what you're reading, you know? And then, you know, are we still having enough cues in our daily experience in order to start those conversations? Because if I'm not curious about what you're reading because I can't see it, I may not start a conversation with you. Whereas if I can see what you're reading, I might start. You know, it's not something that I'm deciding to do. It's like subconsciously I'm I'm like curious, so I will have a conversation with somebody, you know? So I'm just wondering how we're designing our spaces and ourselves in order to still have those conversations. Yeah, totally. And Kevin just sort of um, summarized it beautifully by saying Ellen wants to visualize what people are thinking about in public in a lot of ways. Well, I, I, um, I that from her presentation. That, that's yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So, 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 but that's, but, but I think, but we have to be careful though, because as we're all geeks in, in the room here, um, that's only one of many ways for people to connect. <laughs> I'm laughing at our chat room. Tony's like, nice shoes. Want to fuck? Um, you know, I hope mom isn't listening tonight to tonight's episode. <laughs> my, my mom does listen. So this is us ringing Heather for those in, and listening to Tumble Vision for the first time. And now you know why we have a love-hate relationship with technology. This is our... We call Tumble Vision a salon-style podcast for a reason. I th don't you think the newspaper reading is just one of many openers that people have? I mean, I don't want us to get all worried. We've lost the, new, the, the I can't see the headline that you're reading in your flipboard or whatever. 
But I could ask you what you're reading, but that's a little bit too intimate, isn't it? It's not an opener. Well, you can watch yourself and see if you ask people on iPads as much as you would if they were reading a newspaper, you know? I don't. No, you don't. Because it doesn't feel like it's in public. It feels like it's your private space. Well, it's interesting because so the, the little um, iPod Nano now, the yeah. one you clip on yourself, um, it shows the, the cover of the thing you're playing. Right. Publicly. So, and because you clip it on. Because you clipped out. it on, it's facing out. It's facing so out, the, the, right. the record cover of what you're listening to appears. So that's, that's like a physical manifestation of, of, of what you want to be able to see the thing that they're doing, Ellen. So yes. maybe that's a – we should see – do people talk to people more when they're wearing those than when they're wearing the, the, the iPhones? I'm sure they would. That's a great idea to, you know, to, to physically demonstrate what you're doing at the moment. You know, things that you obviously just want to share with people. I mean, so you can choose then which bits you want to show. It's so funny you want, you, it's you want another screen on the back of your Kindle that shows what you're reading. Right. Yes. Exactly. Or, oh, then we could create Kindle skins that hide what you're reading. Just like yes. you used to change the book covers. <laughs> <laughs> so you could create, that would be really fun. Create a Kindle skin or a Nook skin or an iPad skin that people think you're reading War and Peace, Hello? but you're actually reading porn. Right? Hi, Heather. Hi. Can you hear me now? Much Yay. better. Much better. We should have done this a while. I'm writing this epic text that I'm sending in about the things that I know that get people to engage. But I, I don't. I want. I don't want to like lecture you, Ellen, because you're very kind to give us your your time here. Are you in your in the game? How much time are you spending, or in the structures you're working with, on um, on getting people to be vulnerable? How much time are we spending trying to get people to be vulnerable? Is that what you asked me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how are you able to, if so, how are you able to do it? Well, I suppose, I mean, there's huge vulnerability in asking somebody to to have a conversation based on determining the other person's personality because you're trying to show yourself, but there's this, I suppose you realize whether or not you're showing a true version of yourself and which version you want to show. So, um I think like the psychology behind the games that we tr- we're trying to make at the moment is to try and make people have those difficult conversations, like somehow teach them that you can ask those kind of crazy questions and go in different directions than you would normally. I'm just, I'm just really frustrated with the types of conversations that I'm normally having with people, whether they be geeks or otherwise, and that it's just not real. Yes. It's not teaching me anything about myself. You I know, mean, or- my- my experience getting people to talk about um, emotionally, which is kind of what I do or did in the show for years, is, um, is well, one, I, I found as a performer that because that's what I do, and that's what a lot of artists do, is to be publicly vulnerable and intimate, and now we have these tools that make everyone a performance artist because everyone has a uh-huh. public. The more mm. personal, and if you follow my Twitter stream, I'm not saying you have to, but I very consciously choose to be quite vulnerable quite often in it, which is that tone has changed over time on Twitter a lot. People are much less personally open, less often. Yes. Well, it's a larger group. It doesn't immediately seem like it scales when you do it. If I tell you personally the difficult time I'm going through finding an apartment, I tweeted my miscarriage, okay? Uh, I got intentionally into that. If you do that, it's not the same thing as let me give you hot links for cool stories about innovative businesses every day. It's much easier to get a large follower number doing that, but it changes the public space more. It makes it much more likely someone else is going to tell me 
something much more revealing about them. And the more often I do that in public, the more that changes the public space. So what I, what I found, Ellen, is um, in your groups, are people, is there, is it small clumps of a couple people together, or are they all hearing each other in a larger space like where there's... Because part of the advantage of this performative thing that I've used in trying to get people to, uh, like, in the teaching and presenting and my shows are this very interactive thing, is if everyone's watching, you get to kind of perform this intimacy publicly with somebody, and the more you do that, the faster I can get the space to be, and I want other people to do this too, you'll make the whole space intimate faster. Because it'll, it'll, it'll flip the emotional uh, feel of the place. It's, which for most people, they're more emotionally contained in the conversation of two or three people. It may be faster. Usually for them, they think, to open up. But if you have someone holding the space and containing it, um, and I'm kind of curious about how like that emotional containment is, if it's happening in your game, uh, or if you're sort of helping lead a person to do that emotional containment. And by emotional containment, I mean able to handle and to acknowledge and mirror what comes up in other people. So the feedback isn't coming purely from a screen telling them good idea or well done, but they're able to see and hear a person acknowledge what they're saying. I think, Heather, it's really interesting that what you said is that the role of the performer are you – it's not that you're suggesting that everyone needs to get vulnerable. It's that by very consciously performing that role of being the vulnerable one, it enables, hopefully, the other people in the space to feel more comfortable. It's sort of like I've going I've never the, seen right? it not. A hundred percent of right. the time it does. But then right. the second thing I've learned to do is to get other people to be vulnerable in public. I actually believe... So that's the going everyone, first part, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's the going first part, right. But, but I believe everyone eventually will be more or can be more, and I think having the kinds of public spaces, social media are shifting for us or letting us play with it indifferently, you'll see it um, play out, and it definitely cuts through the BS faster because my experience is, Ellen, I've never seen a room of people. It's rare. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it, people resist it in certain environments. But most people want to get to something of consequence. That, that, that's, there's like an underlying current in every room for that. Even in a business meeting, it may be the consequence. Maybe we actually figure out the problem that we're here to figure out or we get the thing done we're here to get done. Right. But people would rather go there. It's just that they need a permission and they need somebody to emotionally handle that. And I'd love to see you know tools help us do that. But uh, my experience has been... The affect of a person live is the most profound um, asset you have, which is why in speaking, I really am not a believer in most of the speaking training that most people do because I sound serious. Oh, no, Myers, I'm trying not to be serious. I just find that um, people who are being self-conscious have less affect, and their affect is the main thing, opening everybody else. Can I just ask you, though, I mean, there's what do you think the difference is between being so public on something like Twitter and being so public in a space? Because, I mean, there's certain vulnerability that you can access if people know that they're not being recorded, if they're not being tweeted versus, you know, writing everything that you think or everything that's happening to you on a, in such a public sphere. But, so, but the thing that's similar in both circumstances, but you might not have seen it because I don't think I'm typically and I'm doing this, but I'm trying to spread it. The thing that allows that to happen in both circumstances, whether it's online or private, is a sense of safety. It's someone feeling like it's safe. 
to say what they're mm. going to say. It's going to be heard, and it's not going to be judged. It's not going to be used against them. That's the thing that makes it unsafe publicly sometimes to talk about the judging. things. Is, it's, it's people all oh, beyond judging. I mean, I was part of a conversation on Facebook two days ago that made me cry, and I've only cried twice from online experiences because it was a discussion of PTSD, and a couple uh, of guys mm. were just, Aye. they yeah. thought they were defending this, you know, the social injustice they saw, which they were, but they were also utterly invalidating uh, yeah. other things. And so it can be tough. People can feel like, you know, or what happened to Dana at the Web2 conference, people can just jump in that anonymity, which might make someone feel safe to open, also made them feel safe to say whatever they wanted. Uh, being, being, when you do it in public, and the public can be textual or can be, you know, in person, I think in person is easier because we, we have analog. We have so much more affect. We're, we're able to give each other. We're able to, I don't know how this works scientifically, but I'd love to know how um, it is that we're reading each other's signals because you can sense if someone's listening to you or not, and that's a hard thing to articulate sometimes how, but through a device. But I think that's, I mean, the, the part of the role of the, of the game, of the, of the playfulness, is to create a space that is safe because right. it has a, cons- a constrained rule set and is isolated from the rest of the world, even though it can bridge into that later. Is, is, is that, I think that my, my sense is that's, that's part of what Ellen's goal is from this. This is one of the, this is the distinction between um, game, and, game and play that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, where you're trying to get people to, to, to um, be playful with each other. They, if you give them some rules to, 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 put, to put the game in a box to some extent. Yeah, so the containment might not be as emotionally vulnerable as, as you're putting out there, Heather, because not every room has a Heather. Um, but it might be a step towards that. It could. It could. Well, it, you don't have to go that far to say something that's about you or to show yourself a little bit. It's a, it's a skill set that I don't think we practice and maybe these games can help us do it. Well, that's the point. That's what she's trying to, that's what Ellen's trying to build, which you might have lost at the beginning. And I think the interplay here is interesting, don't you think, Ellen? Like, how do you make the emotionally vulnerable, like, how do you make fee- people feel safe? Right. Well, because it's interesting because, you see, we ask people questions based on their personality. And what we wanted to do was if you answered those questions and it turned out that you were a very extroverted, open-minded type of person, then we could give you a role within the group of being like the tumbler, I suppose, for you. Guys, yes. You know? That you would then have a different role as regards to everybody else and you would Ooh. be able to, to do something with that group that other people wouldn't be able to, you know. Um, but that's something that we would, that would be cool if we could talk about that more. I don't know how to even do that, but it's possible. I like that. I actually like, that makes a lot of sense in a way because maybe it's even, do people feel safer once they've been sort of assigned a task? Oh, tasks are one of the quickest ways to decrease anxiety. It's like, it's like magic. Right. But so physical, it's even better. Well, that's what that's what you're doing, right, Ellen? You're sort. Of, I mean, they're not all tasks, but they, they, in a way, they are tasks, right? Yeah, we were. Right. Well, we were going to give you tasks of who to talk to, but we've just like the idea of filtering people or giving people the right people to talk to is still something that we're just not willing to do at the moment. Just for, just you know, how can you have a computer that tells you which people you should be meeting? You know, there's just. I'm just not getting into that at the but, moment. But, but if, I, if I can say the reason tasks manage fear, the thing they're doing, 
is they're giving people and they're bringing people into the present. That's that's where actually there is the anxiety. It's just that they're it's just grounding them so they can be present. Right. Right, not thinking about their... So there's a lot of ways to get that there. It's not the task itself that's the magic. It's just that the task is a, a method to get you to this place. Right, the, well, the task becomes a social object that you can then interact with. That's the... the well, that's, and it that's takes you out of your... Up. Right, and for want of a better term, it takes you out of your head. So you're focused on doing something that's rather right. than fear of what may be coming next or, you know, might be happening tomorrow or that's the importance of being present, right? Um, so... I'm just I'm 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 sitting here and I'm stuck sort of on the giving people a role in a more fluid way. Just like in Werewolf, everyone has roles, right? It's a game. It's a social game. And you're either a werewolf or this or that. So what kind of other roles, Ellen, have you thought of? I'm just curious to learn more. Well, I mean, in Werewolf, you're just given randomly, right? A role. Yes, that doesn't random. necessarily mean that you're good at it. So exactly. I mean, it would be cool to give you a role based on what you're actually good at. So I would imagine some people are better at leading groups and some people are better at, you know, giving tasks to people and some people are better at doing different things within the group. No? So, I mean, it would be something to look at what you could give people to do that would suit their, the way that they've well, answered the questions. What, what do you see with the, the werewolf um, is that if the, moder- if the moderator will stack the deck um, yes. and, and, and pick people to be werewolves, it would be amusing to be werewolves, people to be, to be the seer who would be amusing to be the seer. That's something that you definitely see when you're playing it with a, with a um, sort of a reasonably sized group that overlaps a fair bit and you're playing several games. Okay. So they, they do they do do that, but you, but you're right. But that's or, or the, the the most evil one was where um, uh, Jane gave everyone a villager card, and they, they all went mad because they couldn't work out who was giving them. <laughs> of course, she would. I mean, the other question that I have to both Ellen and and Heather, because you both are approaching this from different points of view, is on the one hand, you want to give someone. Um, a task, a role that they are good at so that they can hopefully, um, you know, sort of bring along the rest of the crowd. But I'm also responding to the fact that Heather, you know, always in in space, in the physical space, talks about the people you want to get involved are the quietest ones, the tensions, right? The quietest person and then the loudest person. So what would happen if, if knowing that I'm an extrovert, you gave me a role of being quieter? Like, is there a way that you can play with the tent? Is there something negative about always giving people what, based on their personality test, what they're good at? Sometimes people should be pushed a little in an opposite direction, right? Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, I would say in terms of my experience running large conversations, it's not. I'm not into roles because you have me tumbling, and I'm trying to show people how to do that. Um, I think the role is a way, as a shorthand, or it's a temporary role. Like if I brought someone up and I said, "You're going to, you know, mix this ingredient right. with me now," you sort of have that, but it's obviously an excuse to, <laughs> for five right. seconds. Um, the main thing is to is. To focus on the flow and the um, and the common problem, or I suppose that's what the games are using as a social the social object for to give the central con- focus or container to have everyone come to. In my case, the thing I've spent the most time paying attention to is how you increase the emotional engagement. And what I found is, um, and there's more about this as you watch my short web two how to tumble talk. Um, it's critical to pick people who are very different. So difference is just as a design principle works works really well. And I don't know if you, a game could probably do that too, to just make sure that you're having beats alternate between people who 
feel different or different parts of the room, have different points of view, different personalities. There's lots of kinds of difference. But that alternation makes uh, the feeling shift faster because I'm going based on trying to get feeling, uh, which is how I'm gauging intimacy and, and in, in connection. As and what's interesting is that when... And, and, and what's interesting to me in thinking of some of the games like this, Ellen, that I've like sort of played at conferences where people give you like tags and tell you all the things that you're similar to, right? I actually find that um, it's much more interesting to find out the, okay, we're similar about these three things, but it's the fourth thing that we're not similar on that we want to talk about, right? So the, the things that you're similar on are are really interesting, but... What I what what I want to have what I do when I tumble and do the room is find the sort of Venn diagram piece, like what are all the things that you're, you you know the the thing that you overlap on is interesting, but it's actually the other the things that you overlap on are an are a trust mechanism. You both are the same on this, but these are things that you don't agree on. But at least the the trust mechanism is that you're the same on this and the things that you don't. Like, that's what I find myself doing to bring people together. Like, don't assume that, like, the things that you're the same on are the things that help you trust digging in deeper on the things that you have differences No, I, I find difference to be the fastest way to make a connection because also I've seen you do this, Deb. When you have a, a word that's, um, you know, maybe our term or something that's very specific to a, uh, maybe a marketing or something specific that you do or boating, whatever you're talking about, the, the fact that people don't know what it is gives you a chance to have an opening. You're always looking for these moments of opening up of difference, explaining or translation. You're looking for liminal moments. So I, so I don't know if that's something, Ellen, and it seems like we need to get closer. We're near the end of our, our time here, but maybe we can close with this. What are the moments in the, in the game design you guys have done so far that help have, have bridging happening? That's a question you're asking me now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are the moments in the game design that help bridging happen? Yeah, that's a good one. So, like, we give people suggestions of kinds of questions to ask each other. Um, I don't... The bridging, you mean connecting? Yes. But, well, everything's connecting. By bridging, I mean, especially to help you go from one thing it's different, rather than who here has uh, a child? Like, that would be a question of let's all be the same. A bridging thing might be, does anybody not know um, what phatic means? And then three sociologists here who do, and five <laughs> people over there have no idea, and then you use the sociologists to explain it so they get to meet these other people who have no idea what they're talking about. Okay, so the people who do know going with the people who don't know. Mm-hmm. That kind mm-hmm. of bridging. For example, or they do know or don't know, or these people are all white and those people aren't, or these people are all young and these people aren't, whatever, anything where it's different. That's cool. Because uh, have you guys heard of Theodore Zeldin? No. No. <laughs> no. Ooh, you got us. Has anyone in the chat room? Our chat room is brilliant. So you might Liars, you must know. If if no one in the chat wait, before you tell us who it is, if no one in the chat room and none of us have heard of it, you officially get the first Tumble Vision t shirt when it comes out. Because then you have officially stumped all of us. And now our linguist. You, you, you gave everyone time to Google, you see. Yeah, yeah but no, 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 no. They didn't know it. They didn't know it. Myers didn't would have typed it quicker. So go ahead, Ellen. So Theodore Zeldin is a really awesome 
guy and he wrote this book on conversation and like it's whenever I'm feeling low about what we're doing I just read that book and I just remember why it's so important it's just an amazing amazing book but he has one idea where he talked about like filtering people on trains so he was like why he was really pissed off about train travel and why when they redesigned trains they didn't think about the fact that they could make it so much more fun that they could put like all the people who are interested in music in one carriage or they could put like all the mothers and their babies in another carriage or that you could somehow like design the train for interaction rather than everyone sitting looking away from each other but obviously i mean they've done some stuff to make the seats sitting towards each other which helps but um i realized like when i i thought that was really cool that you could filter the trains um and then i thought that that would be like an awful thing to do because if we're all connecting on the same thing if we all know that we're interested in music would we really have interesting conversations so that's a cool thing you talk about bridging um, trying to match the people who don't know something with the people who do know it and how you could even design trains in that manner, you know, that you could have carriages for for people to bridge in various sections of it. That would be awesome. Well, you just very seamlessly connected this week's show to last week's show <laughs> where we had Ethan Zuckerman on talking about homophily and the, the, the scary thing that we have on the Internet now is that people will only hang out with people just like themselves and then we'll have no bridging and people and we'll have less groups so you're right you and that's right. why you need tumblers or bridging as heather puts it or the connecting the connecting person on the train who screams across door number one to door number two hey we're talking about music in here what are you talking about over there you know <laughs> that's the way i visualize it but that's i mean the, but that's the point i mean the, you know the, that, i think can you guys hear me yes yes Oh, my God, I can be heard now. It's a miracle. I hate to say this, but I'm trying, we're trying to have a new leaf where we yes. look up in our hour. We're going to stick around and have a great post-show, and Kevin, you will finish the thing you're getting into, and, um, and we'll have one more time with Ellen. But um, look at this. We're wrapping up the show sort of on time. I want to thank Ellen Dudley from CrowdScanner for coming. I'm excited that you're working on on this, and I hope we'll get to have more conversations, maybe not just on the show, since obviously I'm a little obsessed with creating engaging conversations. <laughs> and uh, and thanks for joining us. Are you going to be based in New York now? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, we're here for a couple of months. We'll see what happens. Um, and people can follow what you're doing at what website and what Twitter address? So it's crowdscanner.com, and I'm meet for real or meet for real on Twitter with only one or. <laughs> oh, I get it. Okay. <laughs> very, very cool. And uh, Kevin and Deb, anything else you want to let anyone know about? Uh, nada. We'll talk next week about my experience last week tumbling a live crowd. Great. So I want to thank our esteemed producer, Andrew Hazlitt who's had a lot of patience with the difficulty hearing all kinds of things, producing stuff in Baltimore, his beloved Baltimore. Next week, we'll be back. We have a lot of great guests lined up for you. Um, and we may even have a sponsor soon, people. Miracle. Um, so please go to iTunes and review and comment on the show. We really appreciate that. We're getting out. You can send people to TumbleVision, T-U-M-M-E-L-V-I-S-I-O-N dot TV. And next week we'll be back with Clive Thompson, a New York Times Magazine writer, also writes for Wired, talking about uh, tumbling all kinds of contacts. He's working on a book about the future technology. It should be fun. Ellen Dudley, thank you so much for joining us. On Television, and welcome to the Tumbling family. If we can be of service, let us know. 
You can play your games if you want to try them out. Cool. All right, everyone. We'll see you next week.